Wake up, my beauties. Rise and shine. It's a brand new day, and the mortal world is at peace. But not for long. Just look at them. I pull one tiny thread, and their whole world unravels into chaos. Glorious chaos. And what could be more perfect than this? A noble prince, a priceless treasure, and a black-hearted thief. Oh, this is going to be fun. Cetus, you know what to do. Let the games begin. I'm Jessica. I'm Allison. And today we'd like to introduce our guest co-host for this episode. Please welcome our library's electronic services specialist for the web, Brandy. Thank you. I'm happy to join on this delightful discussion. Brandy has been with the library for eight years and is one of our technology gurus. We would like to welcome everyone to February's More Than Books Library on the Go podcast, episode four. This month, our topic will be gods and goddesses of mythology. We'll be focusing on four different mythologies, including Greek, Norse, Celtic, and Egyptian. Now, the first question we have to ask ourselves is what do we mean by a myth? Myths are defined as a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of people, or they explain some natural or social phenomenon, and typically involve supernatural beings or events. This means that a myth is a story that was created by an ancient people to explain something that they could not explain through logic. While a god or goddess is a deity that is considered divine or sacred, and is usually the main reason that the event in the story is happening. Now that we know what a myth is, and what can be considered gods or goddesses, let's start our journey around the ancient world. Our first stop on the mythology highway is Greece. Greek mythology is arguably one of the most well-known and recognized mythologies in the world. The Greeks used the myths to explain natural phenomenon cultural variations, and traditional hostilities, and friendships. It was considered a source of pride to be able to trace the descent of one's leaders from a mythological hero or god. Now, in Greek mythology, almost everybody knows who Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades is. In most cases, just by hearing a reference from the Percy Jackson books. Yet, there are millions of smaller gods and goddesses that are just as amazing and fun as those. The first goddess that we are going to discuss exploded onto the pop culture scene in 2003 with the release of a film, Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. The Greek goddess Eris is a powerhouse in her own right. She is the goddess of chaos, strife, and discord. And trust me, if you have ever seen this movie, you will agree that she makes causing chaos seem like so much fun. Now, Eris' origin story is told two different ways. In one, she is the daughter of Zeus, god of the sky, and Hera, goddess of women, marriage, family, and childbirth. Yet in others, she is the daughter of Nyx, the knight. In some instances, she is also considered the sister of the god Ares, the god of war, which makes sense, you know, war, chaos, kind of go hand in hand. Now, within the mythology, besides sowing general chaos and discord or throughout the universe, Eris is mainly known for three stories. First is the tale of Typhon. Eris escorted Typhon to the battlefield to fight Zeus while she fought Nike. Most people will argue that she was forced to do this. Like most mythologies, it's up to the interpretation. 
And the second story that Eris plays a big part in is the story of the Apple of Discord. According to legend, all of Olympus was attending the wedding of Paris and Thetis. Eris, however, was not invited. This angered her. You know, it seems to be that the beginning of a lot of issues is you don't invite one person to the party. Therefore, evil and shenanigans ensue. And there's your advice, kids. Curses and wars happen because someone got left off the invite list. So she went to the wedding in secret and tossed a golden apple in with inscription that said, to the fairest. Now, most of the gods and goddesses ran away from this. They were just like, nope, not mine, not gonna touch it. But Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite did not. It always surprises me in these cases of these stories that Athena was involved in these fairest contests so much. The three goddesses started arguing and eventually demanded that Zeus choose who was the fairest. Zeus, however, not being dumb and not wanting to tick off his wife or either of his daughters, picked a mortal man, Paris, to judge them. Each goddess offered Paris something in return for being named the fairest. Hera offered him jurisdiction over a large piece of land, Athena offered him wisdom, and Aphrodite offered him the love of the most beautiful woman in the world. Paris, of course, picked Aphrodite. This would turn out to be a huge mistake, as he just insulted the other two goddesses, and you know how they say there's nothing worse than a woman scorned? Well, let's change that to there's nothing worse than a goddess who can bend the will of man being scorned. I stand by the theory of just saying Persephone. You get people stunned, confused, and nobody would argue against the wife of Hades. I definitely would not. She's yes. the scariest. Let's go with that. She's delightful. <laughs> mm -hmm. Paris's choice would lead to major consequences. When Paris proclaimed that Aphrodite was the most beautiful goddess, she gave him the most beautiful mortal woman in the world, Hela. One problem, though. Oh, well, she already had a husband. This would lead to the Trojan War, which, funnily enough, gave both Eris and Ares the chance to do what they love most, driving their chariots around the battlefield, causing massive amounts of chaos. Now, the third story is a little different. Uh, this story focuses on Eris and the fact that she gets permission to mess with the lives of two mortals, Parathos and Thetith. They claimed that they were more in love with each other than Zeus and Hera were. Uh, this statement really angered Hera, not really surprising being the goddess that she is. So Hera sends Ares down to wreak havoc on them. Ares went to them and offered a challenge. Whichever one of you finishes the project that they are working on first would win, and the other would have to present them with a female slave. Now keep this in mind. She only said a female slave. This will be important. Thetith won, and Polykeith was angry beyond measure because Greek mythology is just a mass of bad losers. So he kidnapped Thetith's sister and rapes her, then disguises her as a slave, and he presents her to her sister as a prize. Thetith obviously recognized her sister and was infuriated. So in retaliation, she murdered Polykeith's son and fed the boy to his father. The gods were so appalled by this situation that they turned both of them into birds so that they would not have to deal with this situation at all. I feel like they kind of just went, yeah, that's a little dark for us, so no. Kids, can you lighten up a little? <laughs> Maybe if you wouldn't cause the problems in the first place, we wouldn't have these problems. I find it interesting that it shows that Eris is definitely a goddess that you should not give free reign to as she loves chaos and pain so much. This can be seen in the fact that she is considered the sister of Ares, the god of war. Like her brother, she is delighted in the horrors of battle. She was, 
considered a violent and vicious goddess who took great joy in the miseries brought on by war. In fact, Eris was usually the last one left on the battlefield. Long after Ares had left and the image of bravery that he embodies was gone, she stayed behind to sow conflict and unhappiness. While Ares represented strength and courage on the battlefield, Eris was what was left after courage was gone, strife and pain. Eventually, Eris would become one of the least popular goddesses in Greece. There were no temples to her, praying for her favor. There was nothing really positive about her that she could offer to people of Greece. Even to their enemies, she could not offer any benefits due to the fact that she never took sides. If she is remembered for anything, it's not for having a cult of followers, except in modern pop culture, or any really great myths, but for grudges, rivalries, and starting off one of the greatest wars in Greek mythology. Now, remember that I said the goddess was not remembered because of her cult following. Well, that changed in 2003 with the release of the film Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. At that moment, Eris was the standout character. She is the one thing everybody remembers from this movie. And as a result, if you go to social media today, you will find hundreds, if not millions, of different types of art, videos, and images that people have created to celebrate this goddess. I will argue that due to this movie, she has definitely become a modern villain that we just love to hate. And personally, I would say I really enjoy the many TikTok videos of the different ways people have been able to incorporate that soundbite uh, from the beginning of the Sinbad movie to create something new and fun. So now I have to ask, what do you guys think about this goddess as she is portrayed throughout the mythology? She sounds like the kind of person that you don't talk about, you don't worship, because you hope she won't notice you if you're just quiet enough. You do not want this person's attention. Exactly. I kind of feel like she's one of those, okay, we're over here, the rest of the gods are over here hanging out, and yeah, we do a few messed up things here and there. We can't keep our hands off anything. And then <laughs> they're like, okay, we're just going to release this out on the world so it makes us look really, really good. She, she's like that anime villain who makes the original anime villain look like a grumpy uncle, but also she's a lot more terrifying in mythology and makes Eris from the movie look just like she wants some fun, and I'm a little scared about that. It's, it takes a lot to make Ares look like the happy one. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> like we've got some, some bad ones, but then we've got that hot mess over there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that the movie Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, did a good job representing not only this goddess, but Greek mythology as a whole? I think for the goddess, yes. Obviously, they made it a little more kid-friendly, so I understand <laughs> that, because they could have made it a lot worse, and she was definitely just discord. Let's cause chaos. This sounds like fun. Mythology as a whole... <laughs> there's not really enough to go on for me to say that as a yes, because they really do just focus on one section. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like um, the majority of things, it feels a little bit more like they tried to make a cartoon version of the Iliad. I do know Sinbad is its own story, but it feels like they tried to landslide into it. And it's delightful, but Greek mythology in movies and media is never my favorite. They've been around for ages and they still can't get it right. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely feel that they had to kind of stop and think, okay, how do we take this hot mess over here and turn it into something that everybody will love and will only slightly terrify children? But then again, you have to go, this this movie was released to a group who grew up on Don Blath movies, Mm -hmm. so we already, already like it a little dark. (laughs) <laughs> uh, 
But I thought the the way they ended up portraying her in a way that you still dislike her, mm -hmm. but she's still a really, really good villain that you love. The question isn't how bad are they. The question is, are they interesting? Yes. Yes. Uh, what do you think about them taking a traditional Arabic story and characters and turning it into Greek? Like, it's not good, but we kind of understand that from probably producer's point of view, which one is which pantheon and everything is, is more well-known? Which, what are people going to recognize? I think they were trying to take a well-known story because most people know who Sinbad is. He's kind of on the same level as Aladdin. Mm -hmm. yes. And make it slightly different mm -hmm. so that you're not retelling the same story over and over again. But... Especially after Disney just did a great job. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I think someone just decided to make their own fan fiction of it and put it in, put put them into the Greek pantheon, which it did honestly work, but mostly because of Eris. Yes, mm -hmm. I'm like without her, I don't think the movie would have been able to pull it off as well. No, basically they were just army pirates who really need to stay on their boat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Now, Eris is a pretty interesting goddess. Terrifying, but interesting. Now, since we're going along these steps, let's go to the next one. Have you guys heard about the twin gods, Demos and Phobios? They're the gods or personified spirits of fear. Demos represents terror and dread, while his brother, Phobios, is panic, flight, and retreat. They are the sons of the war god Ares and would drive his chariot into battle to spread fear in his wake. As a side note, since they were also the sons of the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, they also represented fear of loss as well. One story that they played a big part in was when Zeus fought Typhon, the most fearsome enemy the gods have ever faced. If it wasn't for the twins' forms of fear, Zeus never would have won the day. It makes some sense. What better way to fight a god and defeat someone than through trickery? Usually how it works. The gods that I love the most happen to do trickery, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, they've already got all these powers. It's more interesting if we see them be sneaky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes it a little more entertaining. Right. Mm -hmm. However, the most interesting thing that I found about these two is that while they do spend a lot of time going to, into battle with Ares, on a lot of those occasions, Ares ends up getting severely wounded, and these two end up having to save him and return him to Olympus. Which says to me that, yes, they are there to instill fear and panic into people and to cause chaos, but they're also there to wait for Ares to do something dumb or have a hold-my-drink moment. I mean, if he's your dad, you gotta get in a, a few little mocking comments just with love occasionally if he's gonna be dumb that's how you know they get it from their mom <laughs> it's literally a moment i'm just gonna stand here and wait and then i'll come and save your behind mm -hmm. but you can't really be surprised uh aries had a lot of yeah but did i die moments in his existence now only because you're a mortal dude <laughs> yes now the interesting thing is that you wouldn't think these two would be the types of gods that the Greeks would worship, and you would be correct, but with two very noticeable exceptions. The first is that in many cases, you will find that Greek soldiers use depictions of these two on their shields in order to try and inspire fear into their enemies, in order to try and help them win the battle. You know, like trying to scare the enemy and mess with them so that they surrender before the battle even starts. The other exception is one of my favorites, Sparta. Now, being the warrior culture that they are, the Spartans had shrines dedicated to both of these gods. These shrines were not only used before battle, but also in day-to-day -day life. 
In battle, the Spartans had no fear of death. They laughed when fear led to their victory over their enemies. Yet in their day-to-day -day life, they felt that fear was an essential component of holding society together. Spartan culture was harsh and highly regimented. The leaders of the city-state believed the only way to keep society functioning was if the people lived in fear of the consequences of stepping out of line, therefore connecting these two to the idea of order through fear. However, do you guys want to know what the funniest thing about this is? Despite the fact that these two gods were feared by the people of Greece, and also seen as some of the most important parts of war and warring society, their modern pop culture depictions would never give you that idea. Do you know who these two are in pop culture today? Nope, and you told me, and I still can't understand. <laughs> you will find these two gods in Disney's Hercules as the amazing team of pain and panic. Hades minions. <laughs> yes, two of by far the most ridiculous but also funniest characters Disney has. I've always loved how we went from two Greek gods of amazing power to that. <laughs> Moreover, I argue that the three standout characters from that movie are Hades, Meg, and Pain and Panic. So after hearing about these two gods and what people see them as today, what do you guys think about these two gods and how they are depicted in Greek mythology? They're terrifying, which is good. It's not a bad thing. And obviously they have their dad's back, which is delightful. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal cosmic powers is absolutely what they seem to have, which is why the disconnect exists between them and the movie Hercules. Yeah, Disney has kind of crammed it into itty bitty little space. Yes. Reporting for duty. There is a dynamic duo with the brains of a bird. <laughs> so do you guys think Pain and Panic do these two gods justice? Not a chance. They're delightful and I love them, but they they feel more like the if you're very tired and you need to just take a nap versions of them, and I don't think that they would appreciate that. I mean, in the movie, that, that part where they kind of trick Hercules into going to fight the Hydra and all hell breaks loose, that kind of was on the nose a little bit there. He does almost get defeated. Everybody's really, really freaked out. And then it kind of went downhill from there when he, he beat it. <laughs> And then you get them, like, pushing his merchandise. But I thought they were cute! Yeah. <laughs> they, they are definitely Hades. Uh, good help is hard to find these days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As a whole, how do you feel the film Hercules handled representing these Greek gods and Greek mythology as a whole? They have Zeus and Hera as a wholesome, happy couple. What do you think? Besides, <laughs> there's nothing against it. But the mythology very much is the opposite of that. Hades is great. It reminds me, sorry, of a little bit of the Marvel verse. Like, you took the god's name, you took a couple of things here so that it's recognizable, and then you just ran for it. I think what I find hilarious is personality-wise, they did very, very well. Zeus is very much, I'm awesome, everybody should love me, and <laughs> Hades, they kind of screwed up on that one, because Hades is definitely not a villain. I'm like, I think of him more as a, he can occasionally be a little ornery, and it's kind of funny. Uh, if your brother was, like, that level of jock, I'd be ornery, too. I'm very disappointed they didn't put more of uh, Poseidon in that trifecta, because I think that a Disney Poseidon would have been hilarious. But uh, I think they did very good, with the exception of Hades, on the personalities themselves. Hera. But she had her pleasant moments every now and then. But <laughs> that was I part think, of the problem. 
I think on the general whole, as how they interact with each other, it would they they needed to improve that slightly. That's mm. true. I do think that um, they kind of just showed the version of Hades that it kind of obviously had some more of a Christianity tint to it because they automatically made him evil um, mm -hmm. because he's part of the underworld. And personally, if I was dealing with my brother that way and I was alone for a long time and I was dealing with someone who was interrupting my party plans, I don't know if I would handle it super well, but that's what happens with planetary alignments, I guess. Can't do it, not today type of situation. <laughs> the stars are not in alignment for this tribute, for this party. It's the whole movie. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. And, and then like, we let out the, the extended family with the Titans and oh man. They did Aphrodite fantastically. They did man Ares poorly, but I digress. I love Narcissus. <laughs> Hermes was pretty entertaining too. Oh, Hermes, yeah. was on, Hermes was spot on too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Greek mythology is great and I definitely enjoy it, but what do you guys know about Norse mythology? Very little. <laughs> Ditto. Well, good thing I'm here. Well, Norse mythology is just as complex as Greek mythology, not to mention how it features hundreds upon thousands of gods and goddesses. Right now, however, I feel there are two we need to talk about, especially due to things that have come out in the last few years, thanks to a particular Marvel movie. One of the most interesting goddesses in Norse mythology isn't even a real goddess. Hel is the queen of the realm of the dead. Her name means hidden, which is probably a reference to the fact that the underworld is hidden from the realm of the living. Everyone who dies from illness, age, or is considered a coward or dishonorable by the gods and goddesses will end up in her realm, Helheim. Now, although she is the daughter of Loki and the giantess Angraboda, she's not considered a goddess. She is actually a Jotun. This is due to the fact that although Loki is a demigod, she did not inherit any of his godliness. In fact, the gods, specifically Odin, are the reason she is the queen of Helheim. They're also the reason that she will play such a big role in Ragnarok. Odin, the chief of the Aesir, threw Hel down from the sky and into the depths of the underworld. From there, she made the underworld her own realm and crowned herself queen. She is described as being half living flesh and half corpse, and her personality traits are described as threatening, harsh, and cruel. Hel has two siblings, the world serpent Jormungandr and Fenrir the wolf. Within Hel's realm, you find the hellhound Garmer and the dragon Nidog. Now the creepy thing about the dragon's job is that when he hears the hound howl, he has to fly into the underworld and suck the blood out of all of the dead people, which is kind of gross. This is because once their blood is gone, it is easier for Hel to get them into her army of the dead. Never made that connection from the Thor Ragnarok movie. <laughs> Odin's treatment of her and her siblings will come up in at least one of the stories that Hel plays a part in. The first story is the poem, The Death of Baldur. After Baldur died, Hermit the Brave volunteered to go to the underworld and bring him back. There he met Hel, and she agreed as long as he could get everything in the universe to weep for him. Everything did, except for a giantess who refused. Interesting side note is that most people feel that the giantess was actually Loki in disguise, trying to mess with the Aesir, which would not be a big surprise. <laughs> because of this, he was not allowed to take Baldur out of the underworld. Baldur had to stay in Helheim until Ragnarok. The second story of Hel focuses around the epic tale of Ragnarok, or the destruction of the Aesir. This tale says that according to the prophecy, Loki will break his own chains, he was imprisoned for his role in the death of Baldur, which I don't think he has any regrets over, and will sail on a ship made from the fingernails and toenails of the dead to Asgard. 
which is also kind of gross, but I suppose it tracks. I mean, I guess they don't need that part to fight in a battle. That's true. I mean, if you're going to be wearing shoes or running after people, might as well. I mean, recycle. (laughs) (laughs) He will be accompanied on board by his daughter, Hel, and her army of the dead. So basically, Hel's role in Ragnarok will be to bring the army and provide the ship. The interesting thing is that, unlike her siblings, her fate is never recorded. It's just kind of assumed that she returns to the underworld. What I enjoy the most in regards to any description or mentions of the stories with Hel is that she is a strong woman who rules her own realm. Now, some of that comes across in modern representation, which happens, but it's clear that the origins came from somewhere. Then again, there are a lot of things that have been changed out of the characters that represent Hell in pop culture. As some might have guessed, the modern representation I'm talking about is Hela from Thor Ragnarok. Now, don't get me wrong, I love this movie. It's one of my favorites, but like some of the others we have talked about or will discuss, It's not completely accurate. I mean, she's not even Loki's child. So, take it with the greatest salt that comes with comic books. It does have a lot of entertainment value though, which helps. Clearly, Marvel took a lot of liberties in their portrayal of Hell in order to create their story. For one thing, Marvel's Hell is the daughter of Odin, but in the mythology, her father is Loki. Just like Loki's dad in Marvel is actually his mother in mythology, but I digress. Marvel has also stated that Odin cast Hel out of Asgard and made her the goddess of the underworld due to fear of her ambition as they conquered the universe together. However, as we stated above, Odin sent Hel to the underworld due to the fear of those who sired her and the prophecies regarding the role that she and her siblings would play in Ragnarok. Still, the most interesting factor is that Marvel made Hel the main antagonist of Ragnarok despite the fact that she clearly played a much smaller role in this battle than either Loki or her siblings. Why make her the main villain? Is it because there is so much less written about her than the others? Who knows? Creative liberty, I guess. Now as we're talking about the villains of Thor Ragnarok, I'm gonna throw one more in. Have you guys ever heard of Fenrir? His name means he who dwells in the marshes, which I think is fitting. Some of you may not have heard of him, but if you've seen the film, Thor Ragnarok, you've definitely seen him. He's the big old puppy that she resurrects. Fenrir is the most infamous of the many wolves in Norse mythology. He is the son of Loki and the giantess Angerboda, which makes him brother to serpent Jormungandr and the queen of the underworld, Hel. As we talked about before, the gods were very nervous about the children of Loki and the prophecies that surrounded them. Loki's children were said to be the daughter of death, the son of destruction, and the third encircled the world. To try and control this, they split them up. They cast Hel into the underworld. The great serpent Jormungandr was cast by Odin into the seas that surrounded Midgard, the world of men, where he grew to such a great size that he could encircle the entire world and hold his own tail in his mouth, which seems like it kind of backfired on Odin. However, Fenrir's fate was by far the worst, because why wouldn't they try to chain up something out of fear? That always works super well, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. The gods decided to raise Fenrir themselves in order to keep him under control and prevent him from wreaking havoc throughout the Nine Worlds. However, he grew so quickly and so large that eventually the gods decided to chain him up. Yet, there were no chains in the world that could hold him. They convinced Fenrir that they were going to play a game to test his strength, and the first two attempts, he broke the chains without even trying. The third attempt, however, The gods had the dwarves forge the strongest chain ever built, which, from the unknowing observer, you'd think it was nothing more than a very soft and delicate ribbon. When the gods came to Fenrir with this attempt, he grew suspicious. 
and refused unless one of the gods would stick his hand or her hand in his mouth as a pledge of good faith. I'm sure you can see where this is going. The god Tyr agreed to do this knowing full well that it would mean the loss of his hand. Now, a side note that impacts the story is that Tyr was the one god who raised Fenrir after they brought him to Asgard, which also means he's one with not only the strongest emotional connection to him, but is also the one who can probably understand him best since Tyr is the offspring of giants as well. I'm pretty sure that's why Tyr was the one to take the step. Not only would Tyr be someone that Fenrir trusted the most of all the gods, Tyr is also the god of justness and honor. The legend says that finally, Tyr, a leader of the gods, the one who loved Fenrir best, and one whose very word was oath, stepped up and placed his hand in Fenrir's muzzle. He was honorable, yes. Among the nine worlds, you would find none more honorable than Tyr, but he was also lord and chieftain over gods and men, and sworn to protect their realms. Fenrir, who loved Tyr, and trusted him, allowed the other gods to lay the chain on him. And so Fenrir was bound. And so Tyr sacrificed his hand and his word and his honor to do what was done. Fenrir's chain was then tied to a boulder and a sword was placed in his jaws to hold them open. Personally, that kind of betrayal would hurt and I feel like it probably turned into a self-fulfilling prophecy issue. You know? Despite the chains, this was not the end of Fenrir. Legend says that at Ragnarok, he will break free from his chains, he will kill Odin, and devour the world. This will continue until he is slain by one of Odin's avenging sons. However, even with all of this, Fenrir is not evil. In Norse mythology, characters like Fenrir and his siblings are inevitable and a part of the natural circle of life. Therefore, they are a necessary part of creation. I mean, Ragnarok itself wasn't just about the end of the world, but the end of a cycle, after which history would repeat itself again and again. While in later literature and cultural works, Fenrir was used as the basis for many evil wolf characters in Norse mythology, Norse mythology he actually symbolized strength, ferocity, destiny, and inevitability. In many ways, Fenrir is viewed as someone who has been wrongfully chained in an attempt to prevent the fulfillment of his destiny. This means that destiny is unstoppable. So, while Fenrir taking his avenge on Odin is tragic and gruesome, in a way it can be also viewed as justice since Odin and the gods attempted to stop the natural cycle. Again, self-fulfilling prophecy issues when you try to combat destiny. It's kind of like one of those situations, Odin just shot himself in his own foot. Mm -hmm. Self-fulfilling prophecies never backfire. Um, now, the modern pop culture image of Fenrir is interesting because it runs the whole spectrum, and you will actually find him in more places than you think. You will find that he has been the inspiration for a number of literary characters, including Karcharoth, from Tolkien's fantasy world, the wolf captain in The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, and Fenrir Greyback in Harry Potter. However, you will also find him in the film Thor Ragnarok. His character in this film is different from the mythology. In this film, he is essentially Hela's pet that she rides into battle, and he definitely can't kill Odin because Odin is already dead by the time he shows up, which starts the whole movie. Mm -hmm. Basically, they made him a minion rather than a main factor in Ragnarok. So, what do you guys think about Hell and the modern representation of her? I think it's interesting because you can tell from the mythology she is not an evil character. She is more, life has been done to me and so I made the best of it kind of situation. And yet, in the movie, you have her as this, she has been waiting to bring the darkness. You just have to get out of my way, old man. 
and she's gonna rule the world and she's gonna get a, kill anybody that gets in her way and you're just like where did this come from is this like 90s girl power on steroids she's very scary mm-hmm yeah this this seems kind of like uh, going back to Hades and Hercules in that movie We're, we've got this we don't need a villain we hey there's an underworld character we'll just make them the bad guy yeah never super thrilled with that trend um, I obviously think it's a little off. Um, I think her character in the movie was great. Mm -hmm. And I think the only reason it doesn't bother me more is because they made her Hella and not Hell. And I think they could have just made it to where she at least had part of her face missing because that's part of the appeal of Hell. But she's also super weird in the Almighty Johnsons, so I can't really speak for much. So, what about Fenrir and his modern representations? I think he's pretty... He's a very good character in the mythology. He's definitely one of those, like I said, it's like with Hell. He's, life happened to him, can't really control it. But then, he got. I feel like he kind of got shortchanged in the movie. Because it's kind of like they went, well, we need to put something in here that can be considered terrifying, but fluffy and kind of cute. So, let's go with this. I don't think he really has any... I'm like, we're taking away his actual job, so we'll just stick one in there. He, he winds up having less of a, a role in Ragnarok than... What was the, the guy that the janitor they left in charge? <laughs> Scourge. Yes, yeah, Scourge. Scourge. <laughs> mm -hmm. Scourge played more of a role in this movie <laughs> Yeah, that's not really a good good thing if you're supposed to be helping with Ragnarok. Right. I think they just went, this needs to be Ragnarok. Maybe we should add all of the components. I'm like, you don't even add Jormungandr, but okay. Um, do you like Thor Ragnarok and how it represents these two characters? Maybe elaborate more since we've kind of discussed some of her opinions. I think, I okay, first off, I love this movie. It is my favorite Thor movie of the entire uh, grouping. I think it's hysterical, I think it's fun, and you don't really get that aspect from other Marvel movies. The The comedy aspect is not big in the, in the Marvel movies. But this one, I will definitely say, I will watch it multiple, multiple times. And I think if you take it from the fact that you view it as not strictly Norse mythology, that it's a little less, it's a little easier not to be grumpy at it. They took that as a very, very vague basis, and then they completely rewrote the characters. So if you come in not having any knowledge whatsoever about Norse mythology, it's probably a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting, because it makes it a little more entertaining, because then you have all these people who now know more Norse mythology from the Thor movies. Mm -hmm. And then you can go, yes, but wait, it gets better. <laughs> That's very true. It's a good way to get people interested in the actual origins of the characters. Definitely not as boring as the first one. And I love Thor Ragnarok very dearly. As I mentioned before, I think they could have kept all of the rest of it and just made Hela half human, half skeleton. That would have been super cool and super creepy. And personally, I have always really enjoyed that aspect of her because it shows that she's part of the living and part of the dead, which personally means that she should be very good at being in charge of the dead and helping them adjust from that. Yeah, it seemed like they went more were portraying her as the goddess of death, as in, I'm going to kill everyone, rather than I rule over the land of the dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
have her and Hades from Hercules need to have a chat. <laughs> I can see them having tea together or something and complaining a lot. It's true. I also find it hilarious that by the image they created of her rather than going with the original, they definitely created a situation where you can go, are you sure Thor's not the one who's adopted? Yeah. <laughs> In the one case where they didn't need to make her look like her mythological father, they probably could have made her blonde or something. Clearly he's just the golden retriever among the group of goths. Um, do you think they could have done something different with the movie as a whole, with the characters? I think with the characters they've created at this point of Thor and Loki in the Marvel Universe, I honestly don't think they could have done something different. I think they took it along a logical pathway for the characters they had created. Since they completely changed the base baseline of what Ragnarok is and how it goes about, I don't think they could have put it back on where it was supposed to go. It would have also been really confusing introducing these as Loki's children at this point in the Thor and Loki movies. Yes. That's true. I liked the comedy, but a little bit more genuinely focusing on Ragnarok instead of I get to explode the thing, I get to explode the thing, and then Loki running off. <laughs> but also, quick Marvel comic tangent, they actually have a sister, her name is Angela, they could have somehow incorporated her instead of Hela, but also they could have done it to where they were from an older version of Asgard and they've been reincarnated because that happens a lot and she could have then been Loki's kids but that sounds obviously more confusing. I do think with how everything was laid out it did go the best route it could have and this Loki is a lot nicer than the Loki in the comics who actually would have ended up with those kids. I do think they do a very good depiction of how he actually is as a character compared to a lot of things. I kind of want to argue the reason they made her Odin's daughter is because at some point everybody would have gone, wait, when did Loki have time to have kids? Exactly. That's very true. <laughs> then again, if he had this kid, wouldn't he know about it at this point? Okay, I'll give you guys that those are all very cool deities, but have you guys heard of the Kaliak? The Kaliak is the Celtic goddess of wind and winter. Her name comes from the word meaning veiled one in Old Gaelic. She has also been referred to as the queen of winter. She is older than time and created the world itself. And at one time it is said she ruled the world when the green things slept for untold eons beneath her thick icy cloak. She appears primarily as an old woman, sometimes with one eye. Her skin is deathly pale or blue while her teeth are red and her clothes are adorned with skulls. She can leap mountains and ride storms. And in some traditions, she's a shapeshifter and can transform into a giant bird. It sounds like a D&D &D character and I like it. <laughs> she's definitely not someone you would want to come across in the woods. Not anybody you'd want to make mad at you anyway. She is one of the goddesses that hold connections to actual places in Scotland, Ireland, and the Isle of Man. These places remain dedicated to her, but more on that later. This goddess determines the winter's length and harshness, is a creator deity, and is a protectress of wild animals, mainly wolves and deer. As a creator deity, she has shaped most of the known landscape. However, it is unknown if she did this on purpose or not. The tools that she uses for creation and destruction include her hammer, with which she was able to control storms and thunder. And in some legends, she controlled a well that would occasionally overflow and flood the land when she wasn't paying attention. That seems convenient. <laughs> oh yeah. All the myths that surround this goddess tend to focus on four main aspects. Her is the bringer of winter, the weather witch, goddess of destruction, and goddess of creation. She's neither good nor evil, just kind of a force to be reckoned with. She is ageless and immortal. As winter gives way to spring, she would take a draught that would return her to youth. In many stories, she spends half the year as a young woman and the other half as an old crone. Due to this transformation, she is strongly connected to two Celtic festivals, Samhain, when Celtic year ends and winter begins, and Beltane, fertility festival. As legend has it, in the dark hours of Samhain, the Kaliak washes her great plaid in the Corivraken, a huge whirlpool found north of the Isle of Jura. When her plaid emerges from the tumultuous waves, 
is clean and shining white. The Kaliak uses it to cover the land in a blanket of snow. Throughout this time, she walks the land, hitting the ground and trees with her staff to crush any signs of growth, sometimes while riding on the back of a gray wolf, which is just really cool. And leads another land to winter is coming. <laughs> Now, one of the most interesting things about this goddess is that she is so strongly connected to the physical places. In fact, she has more ties to local geography than any other Celtic deity, and many of these places still retain their connections today. Some of these locations include Hag's Head at the Cliffs of Moher in County Clare, Ireland, and Bain the Kelleek on the Isle of Skye, Scotland. These locations have strong ties to Celtic mythology, and although many myths about the Kaliak have faded from memory, there are still a number of rituals and traditions that exist, such as the legend that if February 1st is grey and wintry, then winter will be short that year. But if the day is bright, winter will return. This is because it is believed that every year on February 1st, the goddess runs out of firewood, so she changes into a giant bird and collects more in her beak. If she wishes winter to last longer, she makes the day sunny and bright to help her with her search. But if she accidentally oversleeps, then the day will be stormy and gray and winter will be short, because nobody wants to put up with that, even a goddess. So it's basically a much cooler version of Groundhog Day. Much. Another legend led to a ritual at the Tikna Kaliach. Supposedly many years ago, the Kaliach, the Bodach, and their children appeared to people near Glen Leon seeking shelter, which, despite the people's fear of them, was granted. During that time, the surrounding glens were fertile, and before leaving, the Kaliach gave a parting gift, that the area would remain eternally fertile, provided that they continued to provide shelter for the stones representing her family between October 31st and May 1st. To this day, the ritual is repeated yearly. This shows that although the modern world rests on technology and forward thinking, mythology and stories still play a big role in the world today. This leads to the discussion of how this goddess is depicted in modern pop culture. In 2011, the Kaliach appeared in an episode of BBC's TV show Merlin called The Darkest Hour. However, the show changed the goddess, and rather than her being shown as the queen or goddess of winter and storms, she was a type of gatekeeper between the worlds of the living and the dead, a guardian of the veil, so to speak. Yet, this was not her role in the mythology. Frankly, she's a much more impressive goddess than just being a gatekeeper, and is one of the most respected and revered goddesses in mythology. So why the change? I think the show did this for two reasons. One, the obvious, is because her name literally means the Veiled One, so it's easy to make the connection between the Veiled Lady and the Veil separating the lands of the dead. The second is that there is a group who believe that Kaliach is not just one goddess, but many. There are many goddesses in Celtic mythology that are depicted as old crones, so since the show needed a gatekeeper, they simply picked one of them and gave her a name that fit the job. But even if it makes sense, they definitely downplayed how impressive she is. Alright, so what do you guys think? What do you think about the Kaliach herself? Do you feel she is an impressive goddess? I feel like this is definitely one of the goddesses in the world that is be-all and end-all. She can do anything, she can destroy anything, and she's just really, really cool. Sounds like a scary version of Mother Nature, which I appreciate because Mother Nature is obviously scary to begin with in the best way, mm -hmm. but she sounds like a lot of different versions of things rolled into one, and scary is probably the best blanket comment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was the first, she was the most epic. And she will be the last. <laughs> Alright, well what do you think about the argument that she's not just one goddess, but a group? I think that comes from the fact that she does have a lot of aspects rolled into her, and it's easier to take this big main goddess and then take all the little goddesses that kinda do around the same things and roll them into one. But I like the fact that you have this female goddess as the one who created the universe and she did it all. And it's kind of like there might be other little goddesses that do similar things that she kind of like delegated certain things out so she doesn't have to do it all. She can, but she doesn't have to. 
I definitely agree that it's really cool that she created everything, but I also very much know that within Celtic mythology especially, it's usually always a group. There's always groups, the fates are all multiples, there's multiples of beings, the crone and the person they always find and the opposite things. It's kind of hard to tell which mythology ended where and if it sprouted or it got condensed, so it's always interesting to see that and I think it kind of depends on where exactly in Celtic mythology you're looking. Fair enough. All right, what do you guys think about the show Merlin and its representation of this goddess? Oh my god, I love Merlin so much. It is such an amazing show. I think they kind of took the short track, though, and I literally think it's because, okay, we need to have a veil between the living and the dead, and someone needs to guard it. You can't just have that thing floating around so anybody can walk through. So what do we do? Well, there's this veiled lady, and it kind of goes together, because otherwise, except for the name, there's absolutely nothing to do with this goddess that connects this to this thing. She doesn't really have much to do with death unless someone is like freezing to death. And even then it's, yeah, I did that, but that's someone else's job. I personally don't remember that part of Merlin. <laughs> I remember the dragon and I remember some of the other stuff that goes along with it, but I don't think I made the connection between the veiled one and this goddess. I don't think it was a very large part or anything. No, I think it was Morgana's sister was dying and she's like, well, I'm going to make something happen, make my death less pointless. This will be a cool way to die type thing. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I'm just going to cause some chaos along. Morgana had a sister? Yes. <laughs> not watching them a long time. That particular sister and heiress would have gone along swimmingly. Yes. Fair yes. enough. Dude. Yes. Fair enough. If you want to know what that character was like, that's pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, how do you feel Merlin represents Celtic mythology? I think in some ways they took a lot of liberties. In other ways, they did a very good job. Like, they represented the legends of the ladies of the lake very, very well. True. I would say from what I remember probably not that bad but you also don't see a lot of Celtic mythology and stuff to begin with so it's kind of hard to tell how much liberty they take with things. That's fair that's fair. Okay, well, we've talked about Greek, Norse, and Celtic, but what do you guys know about Egypt and the god Anubis? Now, keep in mind, I'm a child of the 90s, so I'm sure you two probably know why I picked this god, but I digress. All right, Anubis is a jackal-headed god that is associated with mummification and the afterlife. He has a number of different titles in connection with his roles, including he who upon his mountain, which refers to, you know, necropolises and the like, and he who is in the place of embalming, which I think you can guess. And it's true you cannot have funerals or journeys into the afterlife without Anubis. Now, Anubis has a number of different stories about his parentage. In some, he is the son of Ra, or Osiris and Nephthys, an adopted son of Isis. Others say his mother was Bastet or Hesed, and yet other traditions have him as the son of Nephthys and Set. This is frankly all pretty confusing and depends entirely on which story you're reading from which time period. Basically, he's the son of pretty much everyone. It's like, we don't know who you belong to, so we're just going to give you to everybody. It takes a village to raise a child? Yes. Apparently an entire pantheon sometimes. <laughs> Anubis's image is likely an interpretation of stray dogs and jackals that have a tendency to dig up and scavenge freshly buried bodies. Thus, these animals were tied to the concept of death. He is known as the arch-rival of Set due to the fact that after he caught Set attempting to steal Osiris's body, the two fought, with Anubis eventually besting Set and flaying him. This pattern would continue with Anubis routinely defeating Set in battle. You'd think after being flayed, he would learn his lesson. You know, immortals generally don't. <laughs> that is true. Any of these stories taught me anything. During the time of ancient Egypt, many tombs were sealed with the image of Anubis, and it was thought that the god would protect the burial, both physically and spiritually. So it is through Anubis that you get the idea of the mummy's curse. Dun dun dun. <laughs> because as the guardian and protector of the tombs, Anubis has the power to curse those who disturb the dead. 
So all grave robbers and archaeologists beware. Don't read from the book. You should never read from a book out loud, especially if it's from ancient anything. <laughs> especially in a place that was sacred and or cursed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anyway, so besides being the god of mummification and death, Anubis also plays an important role in deciding if a person's soul is worthy of entering the afterlife. He not only takes the soul to Osiris to be judged, but also makes sure that the scales that weigh their purity are fair to the person being judged. Anubis was worshipped throughout Egypt, but the center of his cult was in Sinepolis in Upper Egypt. Also, to the east of Saqqara, there was a place known as Anubion, where a shrine and cemetery of mummified dogs and jackals was found. Now, Anubis is one of the most recognized gods today, and the many ways that he is showcased in pop culture is amazing. He can be found in the TV show Supernatural, in author Rick Rordan's books The Kane Chronicles, and in the TV show and book American Gods by Neil Gaiman. But my favorite is the part he plays in the movies The Mummy and The Mummy Returns with Brendan Fraser from the late 90s, as well as the 2017 remake. In the first film, you get a little bit of Anubis as the god shows up in four places. The first is in ancient Egypt, when the priest Imhotep is being punished by suffering the home die. In this scene, the men carrying out the mummification of Imhotep are wearing jackal masks to act as a stand-in for the god. Another time you see him is in 1923, where a statue of Anubis has been erected near the entrance of Hamanoptera, City of the Dead. A secret compartment at the base of the statue contained a chest with the Book of the Dead, as well as the canopic jars of Imhotep's lover, Anaxunamun. This was done because as the guardian of the dead, not only was it Anubis's job to protect the dead from the living, but also to protect the living from the dead. Therefore, he was guarding the tools that Imhotep would need to regenerate. I forever love the scene where it shifts from the past to the future and he just sinks under the sand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We again see him during the Battle of Hamanoptera, where the large statue of Anubis saves Rick from death. Rick is standing between a number of statues of Anubis when Imhotep causes the sands to move and his face to appear, which scares away the men chasing him, but leaves some freaky supernatural sand to deal with. However, because Rick is standing between the statues where Imhotep cannot fully enter, he's safe. In this way, Anubis is also warning Rick about the evil within the city's walls, which later in the film, Rick definitely got the message because he tells Evie, what do I think is under the sand there? In a word, evil. Death waits for anyone out there. Finally, in the last scene after Evelyn reads from the book of Amun-Ra, Anubis appears in the sacrificial chamber of Hamanoptera on a chariot pulled by ghostly horses, and drives through Imhotep, taking his immortal soul to the afterlife and leaving him mortal again, which allows Rick to finally defeat him. In this film, they did a very good job representing Anubis. They kept with his traditions and mythology well, and didn't really diverge much into the realm of fantasy. However, Anubis plays a much bigger role in the second movie, The Mummy Returns. The main storyline here was that there was a warrior known as the Scorpion King who made a deal with Anubis, handing over his soul to the god in exchange for an army to defeat his enemies and exact revenge. Anubis accepts this pact and sends a scorpion for the king to eat to seal the deal. Ugh. Right? Mm -hmm. I got the raw end of all of that. <laughs> yeah. This is why you don't just make deals with random supernatural entities that appear to you when you're in a really bad place. Once the king has eaten the scorpion, Anubis creates the oasis of Amsher and grants him his army, the army of Anubis, to replace his lost men. Anubis's army is made up of thousands of nine-foot-tall, muscular humanoids with heads resembling jackals. The king then takes the supernatural army back to where he'd previously gotten his butt kicked and conquers the city. He doesn't have long to enjoy it, though, as immediately after the battle, Anubis returns his army to their resting place, then drags the king to the underworld, where he's transformed into some part-human, part-scorpion hybrid creature, and where he'll be Anubis's slave for eternity. That's the important part, kids. When you're making deals with gods, always look closely at the loopholes. The king only asked for an army to conquer his enemies. Well, at that time, Thebes was his enemies, so once he defeated them, no more magic. So keep in mind, long-term goals. That way, you can enjoy it and not get sucked into the underworld right after one thing. Also need to read the terms and conditions, because I don't think you thought I was going to turn into a very interestingly CGI'd 1990s, <laughs> early 2000s monster. <laughs> 
Yeah, you definitely ask a lot of questions a little sooner. Mm -hmm. Finally, in the 2017 version of The Mummy, Anubis once more makes an appearance as six statues of him surround the cursed princess Amenet's tomb, thereby showing him once again as a guardian tasked with protecting the dead from the living, and again, in this case, mostly guarding the living from the dead, because the cursed ones always wake up cranky and vengeful. Maybe they'll curse people or they won't wake up. To be fair, she kind of cursed herself in that one, because she made a deal with sets and... Oh, don't do that. Yeah, Never do that. Bad things happen. <laughs> okay, so what do you guys think about the god Anubis? I think it's interesting, because a lot of times Anubis and Osiris, since their jobs are very, very similar, they kind of get mixed around and what they're actually responsible for. Anubis is a very cool god. I do generally like him. And because there's so much loose space with what he's responsible for, you can get so much out of him. It is so good. I love him. It's great. I think he's one of the few deities that they honestly, in the weirdest way possible, which I appreciate very much, somehow he's depicted the best mm -hmm. out of everything they do, even in like Stargate and stuff. Like, it just happens. Mm hmm. He's there to be impressive and ominous. Yes. And completely <laughs> done with everything. Wouldn't you be? The one I find hilarious is he's in the Stephen King TV show Kingdom Hospital, but the little girl misunderstood him when he said Anubis, so she thinks his name is Antibus, so he's <laughs> represented as a giant anteater that occasionally gets jackal teeth, which I find hilarious. I was envisioning an ant bus, like a bus with an anteater face, so. <laughs> I was kind of picturing cat bus from Totoro, but only, only with an ant. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Okay, how do you guys feel about the Mummy franchise? How do you feel they portrayed Anubis? I love these movies so much. I'm like, and I don't know if it's because they're just really amazing movies or because it's the 90s nostalgic thing in me. Oh, they're just good movies, yeah. <laughs> and the casting is amazing. The storyline is amazing. I think they do a really, really good job with using Anubis both as a uh, his mythological representation with the architecture and the statues and what they're supposed to do and that kind of stuff. And they do an amazing job with doing a storyline. Because in the second movie, they could have picked any god that mm -hmm. he could have made a deal with that would make a lot more sense than Anubis, like they did in the 2017 remake with her making a deal with Set. That yeah. makes sense. He's into evil things. And you yeah. know Anubis is just from the standpoint, you know I can get something fun out of this. I do really like the army that he's given in the second one. I love the second one so much. I love the movies with all my heart, but I do think they did a really good job to an extent, especially since he is one of the more commonly known deities in Egyptian mythology that people know of commonly because of like, you know, the phase that everyone has with Egypt when they're younger, because why wouldn't you? Gets mummies and remove yeah. your brains with sticks. Mm. I like that they did a really good job with the plot. I don't 100% agree with the auto-villain issue because, again, I'm seeing a trend, and I think he could probably be in on that tea party with Hades and hell. Underworld equals bad things. Okay, we need no imagination now to come up with an actual scary person. We're just gonna shoehorn this deity in. Which is hysterical, because technically it's Osiris who's in charge of the underworld, not Anubis. He's just in charge of getting them there. Yes. And he's the one that makes sure the scales are fair when they're getting their chance to go to the good place or get eaten. <laughs> Mm -hmm. More connected to, not connected, connected to the fairyman from Greek mythology, but he's probably more along those lines than he is along the lines of Hades. And I think it's appreciated in the Mummy franchise that they don't directly just mix him up with the wrong guy, which I appreciate. Because the villain in Egyptian mythology is definitely set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the god that murdered his brother is probably not the god of happiness and puppies. We're just... <laughs> 
which is funny because they completely ignored him at all in the Brendan Fraser series. Did they think we couldn't keep up if they introduced another god? <laughs> Something. <laughs> <laughs> all right, did you guys feel the movies did a good job showing ancient Egyptian religious practices, mythology, and life? Actually, I think they did a pretty good job, especially with their flashback scenes when they were showing like the the cities, the architecture, the magi, and then especially like the scene when Nefertiti and Anoxian Moon are fighting mm-hmm. with the size. They did a great job of showing Egyptian ancient war practices and fighting. It was so good. I think they did a fantastic job. I think they tried really hard to show it respect, and especially for the fact that it started in the 90s, they did phenomenal. That was the era of a lot of cheese. Yeah, somebody was actually paying attention. Mm-hmm. Compared to other works. <laughs> <laughs> very true, very true. So now that we've talked about these four different mythologies, let's open it up a little bit. Let's widen the scale a bit. I think that we can easily argue that mythology is a very popular topic. And it's such a big topic as every culture has their own Parthenon of gods and goddesses. And please don't even get me started on the monsters and creatures because I could go on forever. We may have to revisit that at a later date. And we will be here forever. Yes. (laughs) So before we end, I have to ask, is there one mythology, god or goddess, that you would say is your favorite and why? To many that may or may not be surprised, it is Loki from Norse mythology. He accidentally snuck into my prior conversation. It is because of the fact that throughout all the depictions that exist of him throughout media and stuff, it kind of depends if it's good or bad. People kind of take the, he's automatically evil route, which is not actually how he is. He's just ornery. And he does put himself into a lot of issues, but he always fixes it. And personally, if I was bored on Asgard, I would probably do the same thing. And some of the other problems that the other gods cause, I don't 100% blame them for doing the same thing and pranking people. I really appreciate the depiction of him within the MCU movies, not the comics to a point. Not gonna get into that as a lot. But I also like his depiction of him and Almighty Johnson's because he is, in the politest word, ridiculous and armory, and it's just not a good enough explanation that's going to work in a podcast. I mean, pretty much every group of gods and goddesses, they're all interesting to watch up to a point. But then there's always the one in every group who's that little snot that's up to something. And I wouldn't want to put up with him either. But from our point of view as mortals, just watching this from over in our corner, it's funny. I also seem to have a knack for picking the tricksters out of the mythologies. So, (laughs) oops. I don't really have one particular favorite. I I like watching the Greek and Roman ones the most just because they're the best known. It's easiest to find stories and stuff. And they're just such dramatic idiots that cause all of their problems 90% of the time. They get involved when they really shouldn't. And then all the problems stem from there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's daytime TV. Honestly, I don't think I could say I have a particularly, like, one specific god or goddess. I do have ones I like. Like, I like Athena, and I like uh, Hades and Persephone. And I would definitely say I love Egyptian mythology the most. Mm -hmm. But if I had to go with, okay, I love something, like, I would definitely have to argue that I like the monsters and the creatures over the god and goddesses. (laughs) Because they are just amazing. Yeah. If we want to go with my favorite over all of the mythologies, besides the fact that Celtic's my thing, is the fates. The fates are my favorite thing. They're delightful. And the depictions of them in so many fantasy stories is like the best thing ever. And I especially love it when they do it the right way where it's multiples. It's multiple people. Like how they have it in like Lore Olympus. It's mm-hmm. delightful and I love it. 
it so much. Mm-hmm. The one thing that the Disney Hercules got right, three old ladies just seeing their bickering. Yes, <laughs> I forgot about that. them. And then the Fates Within Sanctuary that are the Celtic Fates. I love all of them. They're great. Okay. So since this is a library and we are doing library on the go for this topic, let's go ahead and talk about some TV shows, movies that we absolutely love that we would suggest people watch or that we think they would enjoy. Let's start with Greek mythology. Is there any movies or TV shows that you guys would go you should definitely watch this either because it is just so good they did everything right or because it is just so bad it is awesome disney's hercules i think when i think about it especially the it's so bad you should watch it the first thing that comes to my mind is clash of the titans but not the remake you have to watch the original 1981 version with the claymation (laughs) and like owl is actually a metal robot bird and it is just so so awesome and the kraken is this weird cgi thing before they had cgi i gotta be honest that sounds a lot better than the remake that they gave us not wrong i mean wonder woman and and xena were fun too xena warrior princess is amazing yes oh hercules the show yeah i forgot about the show (laughs) yeah xena came about from being like a character introduced on hercules A nice thing is we also have young Hercules here actually in our collection. We do. We do. Let's see, when it comes to Norse mythology, Brandy's already mentioned the Almighty Johnsons. Yes. It is delightful. It is a New Zealand TV show. There's three seasons. It is very much for adults, but it's fantastic. And they do a really good depiction of basically Odin's trying to find his frig. That's the whole plot line. Okay. And they go about it in weird ways. stupidest ways possible but it's a bunch of like underneath the age of 30 year old dudes so and you also get feely from the hobbit he is in it you do he looks better after he gets a beard in the long run (laughs) um you also have shows like vikings which has some of the mythology but it's more about i'm going to stab you uh (laughs) and american gods you also have loki yes the loki show is fantastic that does a wonderful depiction about it, um, about the character, and they kind of bring in the softer Marvel version of him, which I personally appreciate because it kind of dismantles the, he's automatically a bad guy thought process, because he's just, he's like his kids, he's part of existence, and you can't really get rid of him. Mm -hmm. He's just there for mischief. Yes. He just wants to have fun. (laughs) You also have Lost Girl, which is a little interesting because you get a little bit of almost every mythology going on because you have Valkyries, but you also get Hades and Persephone and Succubi, and it's just all over the place, but it works so well together. Yeah, it works really well. Kind of like Sanctuary goes with a lot of the mythologies too because they have them as beings that they help, and that includes like the fates that I've mentioned and um, vampires from different ilks and stuff and... I think they might have at least they have at least mermaids they might have a kraken they have a lot of good mythology overlap Mm -hmm. um i think it's probably more celtic and greek though Mm -hmm. speaking of celtic you have uh one i would definitely definitely recommend it's a movie called the secret of ron inish and it's about silkies and it's it's amazing you got a little bit of a mystery but then you got the the legend of the dark ones that come from the that are born from the sea and it's just amazing However, if there is one above all that I would suggest for Celtic mythology, and this is definitely a late 80s, early 90s movie, you gotta watch The Magical Legend of the Leprechauns, which is basically Romeo and Juliet, but with leprechauns and fairies, and then you have Whoopi Goldberg as the Grand High Banshee. And it's just so 90s-tastic, it is amazing. 
true. Uh, I also suggest for Celtic stuff, um, Albion, The Enchanted Stallion. It is more of a child's movie, but it's delightful. It, it goes along um, the lines of the Mavenagoyen, which, which is a set of books that I do believe we have some records of digitally and different treasures that they have and it's mythical beings and basically it's where Albion is which is a different realm and this kid ends up trying to discover what's happening and trying to find her mom or the queen of the place. It's delightful. Um, Egypt-wise, we've already discussed the Brendan Fraser, uh, The Mummy and the Mummy Returns. I would argue that the 2017 Mummy is at least worth watching. I will say I'm not a big fan of Tom Cruise, mm. but I just adore uh, Sofia Botello as the mummy in this movie. She just did such an amazing job. She really did carry that movie. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned it a little bit, but you also have the Stargate movie and Stargate SG-1, mm -hmm. which is it's a little different take in the sense that the sun god Ra was an alien that came to Earth and possessed a kid and flying pyramid and all that stuff uh the mo i the movie is amazing uh and you get kurt russell so kudos on that i mean uh. they, they kept trying to argue that aliens built the pyramids they mm -hmm. just decided to finally make a movie where they were right mm -hmm. and then made a bunch of franchises which i appreciate <laughs> uh the other one i gotta mention is the prince of egypt yes now although this movie is supposed to have religious connotations mm -hmm. It is definitely a 90s movie. Yes! <laughs> it is amazing. And the music's wonderful, and it's just such a pretty movie. Like, the aesthetic is just gorgeous. And it took how long for us to realize at one point that something is not a whale, it is a megalodon shark. Makes <laughs> it so much worse, and definitely worse. <laughs> and since we're speaking about uh, TV shows and movies, I'm going to sneak this one in. If you ever get the chance for the movie Hercules for Disney... Ricky Martin did an amazing 90s-tastic music video for this movie, and it is worth a watch. I highly recommend you go find it on YouTube. Was that I Can Go the Distance? Yes. Was that the song? Yeah. I forgot about that. You get the beach and torches, and it's just epic. It's, it's just so dramatic. <laughs> yes. Um, Book-wise, we do have a couple suggestions. Um, for Greek mythology, there are books like you have the Percy Jackson series, from Rick Rodan, as well as the Lore Olympus uh, graphic novels that are, I love them both, they're all amazing. North mythology-wise, you of course, we, Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman. Um, Rick Rodan also has a series called Mengus Chase, which he is the cousin of Annabelle, so you've got those connections there. Um, you also have a book by Michael Crichton called Eaters of the Dead that is really, really good. I would recommend it. I'm the Norse mythology, uh, The Heart of the Witch, by Genevieve Gordici is uh, about Angerboda and Loki. It's actually like their love story, and it goes through all of them. It even involves Sigyn, which is his current wife, who um, kept the bowl of poison from hitting him. So, points for being a loyal wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Uh, I do. I have read a couple of fan fictions. And she is just amazing. In oh yeah, she's great. Um, well, for Celtic mythology, you have the Book of Three, which most of us in the 90s realm will know this as the Black Cauldron uh, by Lloyd Alexander. Which we have in our collection. It's delightful. You should check it out. Yes. Uh, you also have the Mists of Avalon, 
uh, that it's a very fun, it's a good take on the Arthurian legends. Um, it doesn't show Morgana as in such a dark light as she's normally shown in modern uh, literature. She's just more caught up in everything going on around her for the most part. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's another one we own. Uh, this is definitely the 90s kid in me, but I have to suggest Locke by Paul Zendel, which I just find I fell in love with this book when I was like 12, and it's been a favorite ever since. I love it so much. Um, another one I would recommend is, it's a book called, it's a short story collection called Mermaids and Others, Mysteries of the Deep, and it's edited by Paula Goon. Uh, you've got stories about mermaids, silkies, and just other creatures. You also get a few, like, Cthulhu legend stories and that kind of stuff. Nice. Uh, the Dark is Rising series is a really good one. It's by Susan Cooper, and it's, um, a set of at least three to five books, um, it's kind of a little bit like the Black Cauldron one, only it's based around Arthurian legend, so it's really neat. It's the Welsh Arthur, too, like it should be. Um, you could also do uh, Cursed by Thomas Wheeler. They recently turned that into a TV series. Um, the TV series isn't bad. Uh, I, like, I definitely like the book better. Egypt-wise, you have The Cain Chronicles by Rick Rodin, which is also good. It's connected... Uh, you do get a little crossover between them and the Percy Jackson books uh, because they're both uh, in the state of New York, except Percy Jackson's people are located in Manhattan, why, while uh, the Canes are right across the river and can see them from their giant library. Uh, you have The Mummy by Anne Rice. Uh, you also have a book by Agatha Christie that is called Death Comes in the End, which is a little different because Christie just decided, you know what? I'm going to make a historically accurate Egyptian murder mystery. And we're going to see what happens. And it's really, really good. I appreciate that, honestly, if I'm going to be super honest, because uh, murder mysteries are delightful, and if you can make it tie in with mythology, you might as well. Mm -hmm. You also get a little bit from uh, Ray Bradbury's Halloween Tree, because they do a really nice... He does a really nice scene where they talk about the point of mummification and why they celebrate uh, Samsara and Halloween. Um, there is a book that actually involves people making a deal with Set called The Reawakened Series. It's by Colleen Hook. It's really good, and it's about these three kingdoms who work together to basically stop the darkness from coming constantly. Okay, we would like to thank everybody for joining us. Brandy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. If you would like to learn more about this topic or just check out some of the wonderful books on gods and goddesses, such as The Red Pyramid from the Cain Chronicles by Rick Rodin or Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman, make sure to stop by the library or the library's next Library on the Go event. Thank you all for joining us once again, and we hope you all had as much fun as we did. Remember, the library's next Library on the Go event will be on Thursday, February 24th, and our topics are gods and goddesses and spunky old broads. Please join us on the third floor of the Educational Services Building from 11 to 1230, and we hope to see you next time. Bye! Bye! Bye!